A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast. My name's Mike Calvin. I'm joined by the broadcaster, Faker Others, by Glenn Moore, women's football columnist for World Soccer, and by Sophie Downey from Girls on the Ball. Phil Neville has a two-track mind. He has to tiptoe through the political minefield of picking a GB team for next year's Olympics. And he has to prepare England for the next World Cup. His immediate objective, Brazil, at the Riverside on Saturday. He's got to sort that defence, hasn't he, Say, He really does. I spoke to him last week and he was very defensive about his defence. I put it to him that perhaps with question marks over Steph Horton and Millie Bright and their performances recently, conceding three, all from crosses against Belgium. Is it time for fresh new faces? Is it time to really put some faith in Leo Williamson? And he was very protective. And I wonder whether that loyalty might cause him problems in the future. Mm. Is there a sense, Glenn, that Steph Horton, who is totemic within that team, is almost being overused by both club and country? Well, she's obviously a very crucial player for both teams. And I think sometimes you do get the sense of how important she is when she's not playing for those teams. I don't think Steph's a problem, to be honest. Though, like everyone else, the form goes up and down. And there are a couple of goals that she's been at fault for giving the ball away. But when she's absent, you can see her leadership is, is lost. Uh, so I think she's not necessarily the problem. It's surprising, particularly obviously Phil's background in defending, um, that we do concede so many goals from crosses in the air. I mean, he brought back Millie partly, I think, for aerial dominance. But there's also the sense of organisation. I mean, I don't think there's a better head of the ball defensively in the WSL than Millie Bright. But she, I guess she has to be in the right position to be under the ball, you know, or... There's only one player there, you've got other players as well. So it's complicated, it's odd that they keep conceding so many goals and set pieces. Mm. What about Lucy Bronze? Is she being best utilised? You know, obviously, we're all aware of the talent and you know, the magnitude of the impact she's making globally. Are we getting the best out of her at England level? I think she's one of the best, if not the best, right back in the world at the moment. I do sort of understand why he's testing her in midfield at the moment. We, in the times where she's played in central midfield, um, midfield's been a bit um, lacking. Like last time out, it was without Jill Scott. At the She Believes Cup, we were also without a few players. Um, so I, I think, and as you look at towards the Olympics as well, when you are going to, he's going to have to take an 18 player squad, players will have to be able to fit in if someone gets injured. Um, I get why he's testing in these games, in the friendlies, where it doesn't really matter. But I don't think we'll see it at a tournament. Yeah, I mean, when you look at the Olympics, midfield is an area that shouldn't be a problem. The, the most likely players outside of England to come into the squad are mainly midfielders. Jess Fishlock, Caroline Weir, um, Kim Little. Whereas there aren't 
there don't appear to be too many outstanding fallbacks in the other countries. Yeah, you know, I talked about a political minefield with the Olympics, and you know, it is full of people in blazers who basically say we are going to do it like we always do it. Mm. How difficult is it? Will there be any, or can there be any tokenism in the selection? No, I don't think there can. Um, and Phil Neville has come out and said that he has said, "I'm going to pick the best team." to go and win gold at the Olympics. And if that upsets people and doesn't cover all the nations, then so be it. And I think with my selfish hat, I'd love to see them have gold around their necks. I think that's the right decision. What about in the broader terms? What impact would an Olympic victory have over here? Um, well, I think the Olympics in women's football has always been up there with the World Cup. It's been one of the most important tournaments. And it's been a real shame that we haven't, and well, since 2012 and before 2012, haven't had that presence there because it is a major competition. I think it would do wonders. It would just keep this momentum going that we've had um, and going into the Euros in 2021 if they came home with a gold medal around their, their necks. Mm. Imagine what that could do for the game in this country. Also, but the BBC will give it huge coverage. I mean, they give the Olympics massive coverage when they have it. Um, and the combination of that coverage plus the football as well, it will get huge penetration into an area that women's football doesn't normally go into. Mm. You mentioned you, you saw Phil Neville last week, mm -hmm. Faye. What's your sense of how he's developed as a coach and a manager in the time he's got the job? You know, because there were a lot of doubts about him when he started. Has he answered those doubts? I think so with some results. I think there's still massive questions there. I think Phil's biggest problem is that sometimes he's so desperate to get across what he's trying to do and, and that he's trying to do something different and that everybody is working together that sometimes he trips himself up when he's talking and mm. there have been a few clangers and that can be a worry. That, that gets unnecessary focus on him when he, when he doesn't really need it and he says a lot of things then contradicts himself and again that's incredibly frustrating like he's talking at the moment um sophie was saying about lucy bronze being used in midfield and she can understand why with 18 going to the olympics and i understand that as well but in that case he's also come out and said that in these friendlies he wants to experiment and it's a great opportunity for them to be able to do that because they don't have any qualifiers for for euro 2021 being the host nation so why is he not trying out other combinations in defence. That, to me, doesn't make any sense and completely contradicts what he's saying. Because mm, that's an interesting area, because, you know, because we're hosting, we've got a diet of, of friendlies. Now, I thought it was a very interesting interview with uh, Lucy Bronze last week where she talked about we need to be better prepared for the biggest games. So, by definition, England are at a disadvantage, aren't they? Because they can't. I think, well, yeah, you don't have any competitive games, really, apart from the Olympics from now until Euro 2021. But I think you can find a quality in opposition that while it's not at a competitive level, something like the Shibalees Cup, which is competitive when you're there, it's, a, it's against the best teams in the world, it's against the USA. You're getting that kind of experience. Yes, nothing can sort of replicate a tournament environment. Um, but I think that's probably as close as you can, can get to it. Just the fact that you have three games in about six days. Um, you're travelling a lot, you're on the go. The weather is crazy at that time of year. Um, so I, I think that's th those kind of situations is you have to try and find the friendlies that can replicate that as much as possible. Yeah, and let's be honest, most of those qualifiers are not competitive games. 
Mm. England will win almost all of the games in qualifying. They've been with one other team. Last year, last time it was Wales, previous time it was Belgium, who they have to beat. And the rest of them are just a matter of how many. So their friendlies should be more competitive opposition. It's just a question of trying to make it mean enough. And I guess when you've got the incentive of Olympic qualification, well, qualifying to get in the team for the Olympics, that should get the players sufficiently motivated. Mm. You've got Brazil and then Portugal on the following Tuesday. What type of opposition will they represent? Well, Brazil came here last year, so it's surprising that they come back, particularly since last year they came to Nottingham when the weather was horrible and they didn't look terribly interested in Marta. They did about 15 minutes and then, oh, I've got a strain, off I go. So they take them to Middlesbrough this year, which <laughs> will be lovely um, in October. Um, but in both cases, I think we're looking at opposition who will keep the ball well. And that's something, obviously, Phil's trying to bring into the side. I mean, there is a question, as Faye was saying, about have the team progressed uh, under, Mark, uh, under Phil compared to where they would have been under Mark? And I think the answer is we don't really know. Uh, results have been very similar. They are playing more expansive football, and that's obviously something he's looked at, looking to do. So, you know, um, the pressing game, uh, keeping the ball against opposition who are technically good. So in that respect, these two fixtures should be quite useful. Mm. I think we've seen over the last year that expansive football that you're talking about is definitely much more prevalent than it used to be. We used to be very solid at the back and now you're seeing that attacking play a lot more. I think the friendly last year and the one against Australia the day after, a couple of days afterwards, I saw some of the best football I've ever seen England play in that game. It's just a question of doing that consistently. Mm. Now, you've got it, you're starting to see it coming through. I think mm. we saw it against Norway in the World Cup especially. Um, yeah, it's just about making that consistent. It's a shame we then played Norway in a friendly and ruined that because that was the best game of the World Cup. Mm. And then you want progression and we went backwards. Yeah. The big friend is Germany. Yeah, yeah, Wembley. That was a that was a huge friendly in development of the previous team because it made Mark Sampson think we can't afford to go out and attack these teams. We have to defend, and and he was right at the development of the team at the time. And but England then had a very sort of reactive game for the next two years. Um, so we to see where we are, indeed where they are. You know, mm. uh, for that friendly. Well, it looks like about twenty five thousand in middle, at Middlesbrough. You're going to get sixty plus at, mm. at Wembley, um, and that's the type of fixture that make people set up and notice, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. My, my sister messaged me the other day saying, I've bought tickets. Um, I got you one as well. I said, well, I'll be there already. <laughs> <laughs> um, but my niece and nephew, I took them to their first football game there, 12 and 9, and I took them to their first football game a couple of weeks ago and they were enthralled. They absolutely loved it, the atmosphere. It was a Tuesday night game as well, so not even, not even great. I won't tell you the team because it's not my team. It wasn't my choice of where I was going to take them. Um, but they're really excited. They've always wanted to go to Wembley. And so it's similar to what we were talking about before we came on air, um, which was a lot of people want to go and see these big stadiums and, and give their, their kids or, or even adults who don't get the opportunity, can't afford perhaps to go to, to any of the big games, to go and see these big stadiums and see professional footballers ply their trade in these big stadiums. And, uh, and yeah, I think it will be a fabulous atmosphere. Mm. I think you are seeing, seeing it change as well. I definitely felt it over the World Cup is where people who hadn't been, really been into football, definitely not women's football, but has sort of been felt a bit on the sidelines with football as a whole. But come, suddenly watched it on the BBC. They saw it, it was there for them to consume and they can consume every game. And they suddenly was like, this could be the sport for me. And they saw something in the women's game that really drew them in and really It's interesting to say that because Phil Neville actually said in his press conference last week and, and, and clarified it again when we spoke afterwards, um, that he said, we've always had the youngsters. He said, there's been no question that we've had the youngsters on board and, and, and watching women's football. But what he felt the tournament um, in France brought was the older generation of fan that perhaps 
wasn't interested in women's mm. football before. And he said that was the crucial point. Guys talking about it down the pub, watching the games down the pub. People with, you know, kids that they then want to take when they perhaps hadn't thought about taking them before. Or like we saw at West Ham at the London Stadium, exactly the same kind of thing. West Ham fans and season ticket holders going to watch their club play without the definition of male or female. Mm. When you look at women's football, it is at a crucial stage of its development, isn't it, Glenn? Mm. Um, does it need, now it's a, it's a bit of a hackneyed phrase, the right role models, but does it need, say, a player like Jordan Nobbs, showed her character in adversity, she came back and scored at the weekend. Do you need players like that to actually provide that bridge? I think there are plenty of players in the women's game like that. I mean, um, partly because they've got a lot more life experience than most of their male counterparts because, you know, well, the older ones obviously had jobs and things, you know, like Jill Scott, but they haven't been quite in, in the bubble in the same way. So they've got stories to tell and also because they're not quite so exposed to the media, you know, those stories are fresher. So um, there are very much lots of players, you know, with good tales to tell. Um, I think what it really needs, though, is success. Success creates publicity, which drives things. Mm. What about, um, you know, the broader... We, we looked at the, you know, the FIFA Best Awards... And there was a definite element of, of equality. And you had almost like what I would call the, the Repinot principle, that she got there and she used the platform in a positive and very strident manner. Is that where women's football is going in terms of, yes, we can actually be social influencers here? I think, yes. I, th I think um, someone like Repinot, she's such a character on and off the field. She's such an influential player. And I think... I know there were questions about whether she should be talking about that stuff at the World Cup or at the awards, but when else, is, when else is the camera going to be on her, mm. firstly, in the women's game? You've got that month in, in June this summer where there are headlines on every page. So I, I don't see why not, and why not use the platform to progress the things that she feels very, very uh, strongly about um, and demanding equality for, for the women's game. Mm. Because there is a special platform. You saw it at West Ham on Sunday mm. where you know, they launched that um, charity pink kit, the third kit, for uh, breast cancer research. Mm -hmm. That's part of the, the USP of women's football, isn't it? Yeah, well, you know, you've seen men's football use, you know, for, for whatever platform they want to use it for, why not with women's football? And particularly the breast cancer awareness, there was a, a whole screening with, um, I can't remember the presenter's name, Emma Willis, uh, on there, the advert that had been going out was screened across. You know, it, it's not, I don't, I don't want to use this word uh, lightly, it's not palatable to some people when you hear, you know, talking about prostate cancer, talking about breast cancer. Some people just don't like that. But when you've got a captive audience in front of you who are people who that might be useful to, why on earth would you not do it? Yeah, you know, clubs in the men's game have been very good like that. It's quite rare for a male sports person in the UK, though, to put any, put, say anything politically or pu publicly. Um, much more the case in America at the moment. Um, and it's a good opportunity. I mean, th there is a platform there mm. to push things. What about, let's look at, on, on, on the flip side of that, the dangers of, you know, FIFA have, have got involved. They've obviously seen the potential, they've seen the commercial potential of it. And they're now looking at almost tinkering with competitive structures. Is that part of the danger that faces women's football? That maybe they're going to get, or the game is going to get swept along by political imperatives? Well, there's a couple of issues. I mean, one, they're looking at expanding the World Cup, 
I personally think that's too soon. I don't think the depth is there for 32 teams, and you're going to get too many heavily one-sided games. It won't do anybody any good. Um, and the other thing is obviously the idea of a club world cup competition, which they've met a lot of resistance in the men's game about expanding it. There's a sense there of FIFA doing a land grab against, say, UEFA. Yeah, um, possibly. I, mean, I think that is probably quite a good thing for the women's game. It will create yeah, more coverage and promise and will help other areas of the world. The two uh, drawbacks is one, when are you going to play these games? Because the fixture list is getting quite congested. Now, of course, everyone plays at different seasons around the world. And uh, one particular problem for like Australian clubs is a lot of their players are on loan from American clubs and vice versa. Um, so if you're someone who plays for three teams, it's a bit like when cricket had international T20 competitions. You know, some people are playing for three or four teams. And not quite so bad in the women's game, but quite a lot of the good players play for two teams. I mean, who would Sam Kerr play for? Well, probably Chicago Red Stars. But um, so there are one or two logistical aspects to be dealt with. Mm. What about the other aspects of of the influence of the men's game? Because there's a there's a trickle down effect of finance and and interest. But you know, you you saw or most pertinently heard at Lee on Saturday the flip side of that. The, the Hillsborough chance. Can you give us some idea of, of one, whether that was particularly obvious, and two, what challenges that now presents for women's football? Well, I definitely heard the chance on uh, Saturday. Um, they happened several times throughout the game, and we all heard them in, in the area that we were in. Um, I think we've, with women's football, we've been blessed with this really nice atmosphere that we go to that's unsegregated, and we want to try and hold up onto that as much as possible um, while building the game. And to me, I don't see why we can't build a really nice atmosphere in the stadiums without bringing those hostile elements into the game. I think it's about education. I think um, it, it's just about general behaviour. I mean, just common sense behaviour in a way um, that people don't often think about, but just making it very clear to, to everyone that we want fans from all areas of the game. We want fans to come over from the men's, men's side, but you just have to behave well, mm. that's all I say. Yeah. Like, Easier said than done usually yeah. in football, isn't it? I think clubs are going to have to crack down very quickly yeah. and there yeah. should be a lot more self-policing among fans as well. Mm. Mm. Okay. You were at West Ham on Sunday, 25,000 people there. Yeah. Um, as, as an uh, occasion, how did it come across? I thought it came across really well. I thought the atmosphere w was great. Everybody was engaged. I, I think there would have been a higher attendance had the weather been better, the weather was pretty awful. Um, and I was really impressed with what they put on. I do think that the tickets could have been priced higher than they were. Two pounds about that. Two pounds, yeah. One pound for season ticket holders and, and kids. And I, I interviewed Jack Sullivan um, a week ago and talked to him about that and asked him whether they'd learnt lessons from Manchester City's pricing structure for their opening game where 11,000 more fans turned up than they were expecting and paid on the day. And I think that was £7, £7.50. And then Chelsea, who gave them away for free, were expecting 42,000 and actually got 24,000, 25,000. And what did he learn? And he said, we've decided to pitch it at one pound, two pounds. And I, I still think that they could have pitched it at five pounds and had the same amount of turnout. Because mm. you've got you know, the upcoming game at the Tottenham's new stadium. Um, again, if you're Daniel Levy, Sophie, what sort of price would you charge? I mean, I'd go between the five and 10 pound range, to be honest. I think you can go for 10 pounds at these big stadiums. I think 
going for nothing is devaluing the game. You have to put a value on the sport at this point. They're professional athletes. Um, you're getting into you're going to one of some of the biggest stadiums in in the country. You shouldn't go for free. That's my personal point of view. I think for the Tottenham game, Tottenham Arsenal. I mean, the new stadium. Why not put it at ten pounds? I think you will mm. attract the people. It does seem more that it's more expensive to go and watch West Ham at Rush Green than it is at Olympic Stadium. Mm. Yeah, you know, and and it would be uh, well, obviously Spurs don't charge like a pound for the hive. Yeah, if they go there, so. But I would I would say particularly with the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, they've got an amazing opportunity mm. because look, you know, since that stadium has opened, social media is full of everybody just going, "Wow, best stadium I've ever seen in my life." People mm. want to see that. You still have to grab those people, regardless of whether they're going to watch the game or not. They're going for the experience, and you might then get a load of people who say, actually, what an amazing product this is. This is better football than we were expecting, etc., etc. Those are the people that you have to get and make it a day. Mm. So, in other words, make the popularity of the men's game work for you. Mm. I mean, the, the attraction of the, the ground is a massive attraction, isn't it? I mean, yeah, I can imagine quite a lot of people will go there just to sort of see this new pipe machine where it fills up <laughs> on the bottom. Well that, well, that won't be cheap. It's going to be five or six pound a pint. <laughs> so, why not with at least six pound a ticket? Yeah, yeah. With, um, <clears throat> again, the broader issue of... You know, with, um, Equal pay. You know, I think the Finns are, are trying it now, um, simply because of, of the, the vast amount of money paid in the Premier League. You're never going to get equality as such. But would over the next, say, three or four years, would a new type of player begin to emerge in terms of you know, very professional, almost a brand in herself? I think we're starting to see it with the, the players at the top now. I mean, the Steph Wartons of the world. She's incredibly marketable in, in herself. She is a, a brand. I think, yeah, it's going to get closer. I don't think anyone is asking for what the men are paid in domestic football. Um, I think we all know that that's... A, like They just want to be able to sustain themselves and be able to live comfortably, I think, mm. on what and, and actually be paid what they're worth. Um, I have a different view on international football. I do think I might be a bit radical, but I think at international level, you should be paid the same because you're appearing for your country and international organisations should pay the same. That's my personal point of view. Of course, it's a tricky one. I mean, like England, male footballers, all their money goes into goes to charity. They don't take any basic pay. I'm not quite sure whether that would apply to how they picked up bonus for winning the World Cup, but I mean, they don't actually receive any money directly for playing for England, though the FA do pay a, a fee that goes to the charity. Um, it is, it is a complicated one. I mean, the Americans have got a very good argument for equal pay. In the club game, clearly there isn't because it's not generating that kind of income. And I mean, whilst a, a lot of sympathy for the idea that, you know, people are professionals and working very hard and so on, that also applies to hockey players. They're not getting any money. Mm. I mean, lots of sports people are highly professional, put a huge amount of their own time in, and they don't get any money because their sport doesn't attract that many fans. The sport has to attract more fans to justify paying more money. But you've also then you know, got the commercial element to it, where someone like you know, Nike have, have said that they sold four more times uh, the amount of gear than they did um, in 2015 as compared to 2019. Yeah, well, I mean, I think finally brands are starting to realise, you know, you've got a number of them, I won't list them all, mm. um, but a number of the Lionesses have got commercial deals with, with, with partners and you are seeing brands realising the potential of female role models because that's what these women are, they're role models to the younger generation and that is exactly what brands are looking for to represent them.
Mm. That actually be the growth area for income and also television. I mean, the, um, the French rights have gone out for the next Euros and the, the current round of bidding is at least twice what they paid for this round of Euros. From a, a journalist perspective, what are the current generation of players like to deal with? Are, you know, are they quite um, accessible and eager to tell their stories? I would say yes. Um, I would, yeah, I think they're very willing and quite open about what they're ready to talk to you about. They know that where they've come from or where the generation before them, them have come from. And that was the connection with, with people, with the media, with the fans. Um, and it's something that's very, I think, quite unique to the women's game is that connection between, between people. Um, I haven't encountered... I mean, I think they're very yeah. willing to help. And I, I've not had any resistance at, at all. Um, people, you know, if, if, if there's something they, they perhaps don't want to talk about, they'll, they'll maybe say beforehand, you know, what, can we not touch on that? Mm. Which is absolutely fine. They're well within their rights to do that. Um, but I think... You know, there are some players who absolutely know the importance of the media and getting the media on side, getting their name out there mm. as well. Um, you know, there are more who are, you know, more willing to put themselves out there than others. Others, but that's the same in men's football. There are there are men's footballers mm. who like <clears throat> their private life and like to keep themselves to themselves. But, you know, there are certainly plenty of women out there <coughs> who really want to get, you know, their names out there and 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 become a role model for these young girls. Well, I would say access is getting slightly harder it's on the bigger clubs as they become more professional, <coughs> as media departments are taken out by people who work across both genders. Um, and as demands increase, obviously. And I'd also say, in defence of the men, most of the time you speak to men players, they're great and they're quite happy to talk to you. The, the problem is actually getting access. Mm not the players themselves. But I think that's a good thing, um, because the one thing I was worried about in the WSL, and there have, been a, there have been a couple of instances, you know, we saw with Casey Stoney being taken to her press conference in that opening game, Manchester Derby, it has to be as professional mm. a, as you see elsewhere. You know, the press officers need to know what their role is in making the players accessible, the managers accessible and things like that. That has to be better. Um, and I think they are, they are learning that. Mm. And given them the they're due. The FA are doing a good job in the promotion. You know, the streamers. So you were saying, you know, you watched all the games. Yeah, I was at home yesterday watching every game <laughs> from the one on the championship to the, the all of the um, WSL games yesterday. Uh, it, it's great. It just opens it. There's no geo block. It opens up to a huge audience. You can watch it across the world. That kind of access is just incredible, and I think incredibly valuable in the future. Mm, mm. Such a good resource. Mm. Do you think? Do you see? the WSL developing and evolving into the best league in the world? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's already the <clears throat> only professional women's league in Europe. Um, you're seeing with the amount of international players that, that are coming over here, and that only enhances the brand, if you like. If you like to call it that, it depends where Horrible you're at word, with football. <laughs> I know, I hate it, I hate it. You know, we're all... Working in football, most of us are football purists. We work in it because we love the game, but unfortunately now that comes hand in hand and if you want to grow the game, it has to be, you know, you have to see it like a brand, if you like. Um, and certainly the Barclays FAWSL, as it is now called, um, is becoming massive. So, yeah, I absolutely, I absolutely do. Yeah. When the WSL resumes on the 12th and 13th of October, Arsenal-Chelsea leaps out at you. Where does that balance of power now lie, do you think? Well, the season's been quite interesting so far. Um, 
you just say it still looks like Arsenal, Chelsea and City, Manchester City will be the three top sides. Um, and Arsenal strengthen their squad, but they've got European commitments. Chelsea, I think, have regained a bit of focus after last year. Uh, tightened their squad a little, haven't got European commitments. So for all three teams, I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be quite close right to the end. And, you know, the problem is you have a, one little run of bad form and then you drop off. But I don't think it's quite the stage. The, the second tier of clubs are getting closer, but I think it's only Birmingham beating Chelsea last year was, I think, the only time in something like the last 30 odd meetings that the, the top three haven't won those games against the others. Mm. How do you see it all going? Sophie? I think it's definitely more competitive this year than ever before, and you are seeing that the likes of Spurs and, and um, West Ham, even, they, they are making it harder for teams. West Ham against Arsenal in the first game of the season, that was a tight game. I would say that watching Arsenal yesterday, I think they're beginning to hit their stride. Um, and that must be worrying for some of the other teams around. But Chelsea won big as well. Uh, it's getting more competitive. It's getting more, um, you can't really call it. But I do think those top three are probably, as Glenn mm. says, the ones who will come away with it. In, in the you, you saw Spurs. Um, how impressed were, were you by them? Very. Because... I've seen them twice this season because mm. I saw them on the opening day against Chelsea. And, you know, they held Chelsea to... Mm. To just conceding one goal, um, and they were very, very impressive. Um, they were without Gemma Davidson, um, who has been their star performer, I would say, so far, and they still were absolutely excellent. Rosella Ryan, in particular, down the left-hand side, was was creating everything. Um, I thought they were well worth their their win yesterday, um, and I think that the most pleasing thing is is that most people had written them off at the beginning of the season purely because they'd come up you know, second place and, um, you know, people were expecting them to struggle. And what Karen Hills and Juan Amaros have done is is fantastic and I really hope they keep pushing uh, the, the so-called bigger sides, if, if, if you like, and, and can really do something this season. Mm. So much depends on a coach, you know, men's or women's game. Um, Joe Montemoro at Arsenal, very impressive guy, mm -hmm. affable but, you know, very intelligent and great experience. That makes him a, um, a, an important commodity around the world. Uh, do you expect him to go to the US team? Well, also, um, reportedly, have knocked back an approach. Um, you would imagine Joe's still relatively young, that he might want to prefer the day-to-day -day stuff, but, and for a few more years, but it'd be very hard to turn down America, particularly an Olympic year coming up. Um, and the American team plays so often, it's almost a like, like a club job they are on the road a huge amount for an international team but he has signed quite a long contract at Arsenal so he's under contract and Arsenal could keep him but then do you want to keep him on a happy manager it's a difficult one but this is the problem you know it's one of the great things if you're successful people want your manager and your players mm. what are the defining characteristics of this Arsenal team is it a better team than the team that won the title uh, yes they've strengthened um, I think at times last year they could barely name a bench because of the injuries, and it was quite a small squad. So while they played extremely well and they, they dominated the league, um, yeah, it was a, a very, they were in a bit of a, a string in, in terms of in, in injuries. Um, this year they've strengthened, they've got what the best striker in the world, I think, at the moment. In Vivian Miedema. FIFA didn't get him. She wasn't in the team there, which is and bizarre, I, I think wasn't it? Many of us, <laughs> I think many of us would disagree with that yeah. because, I mean, she's unbelievable. She's 22. She's broken the Dutch scoring record at, at that age. Um, she was well, top scorer last year in the WSL. She just scores for fun, that girl. And um, 
and it's creates. scary mm. and creates. Yeah, yesterday in, in Arsenal's win, she was involved in every goal, um, both scoring one and then assisting. Well, getting back to Joe, he obviously enjoys managing here. He's got great facilities at Arsenal, good backing from the club. Um, he's an Arsenal fan from boyhood. Um, but he's portable and his, his family is still living in Australia because he's kitchen mm. at school. So it's not as if he's got roots in, in the UK as such. And he could just as easy live in America as he could in them. Um, as in England, if you're family in Australia. So, you know, in that respect, it's going to be interesting to see how that develops. Mm. With um, Emma, Emma Hayes, I get you know, she's a very driven personality. How much did the season, last season, hurt her? I think it hurt her, but, you know, she had other things going yeah, on. for sure, uh, yeah. You know, and I think it's made her more determined this year, therefore more frustrated with a couple of the, the results they've had. It's made her more determined um, to, to make this a successful season. And, yeah, as you say, she is very driven. Um, I think once they start clicking a bit more, I think it was a really good confidence-boosting win. Um, yesterday, that was their most convincing win this season. You know, they'll have been... Well, I know she was very disappointed about the draw um, with Brighton the week before. But I think in terms of where Chelsea go this season, both Sophie and Glenn, you know, mentioned that they've got no Champions League football this season. And so if they can't, you know, push for the title, then, then she'll be very unhappy. Mm. We've been talking about the next generation of talent, of coaching talent, and Casey Stone is probably the first name that gets mentioned. Uh, what are her defining characteristics, do you think, Sophie? I think, well, first of all, she, she's played the game. She's... She's done it all, as it were. Um, and I think she commands that respect with players that come through, um, that know that she, she has been there and, and done it. I think she has a very good knowledge and her football brain. She, I mean, I could listen to her for a, a long time talk about football because she knows the tactics, she knows very well. And she knows that she's developing herself. She's well aware of her own um, progression. She, she knows she's a young manager. She knows that she's not there yet, that she needs to get there. Um, I think she said to us on Saturday that um, she's learning a lot along the way from what she's been in the, the job 15 months now. Mm. Um, so it, it's still a learning process for her, but she's in the best place to do it, I think, being at Man United, because they've given her that space to grow with the team. Um, and com she commands the respects of most players, I think. Mm. Yeah, well, Manchester United is all about icons, you know, for the, for the men's team. Although that might be on a bit of a, a, a bit wavering at the moment. I was hugely impressed by um, uh, Lauren James, 18 on Sunday. The turn for the goal that she scored was fantastic. How good is she? Very good. I mean, she's very young, uh, obviously football family. Uh, brother is doing well at Chelsea. Uh, it's one of those situations where as long as you know, she's well advised and stays fit and all those things, you know, the sky's the limit. Mm. I saw her play in her debut for Arsenal against Millwall. And she came on the, the pitch at 16 and we were all like, that kid. <laughs> I mean, she just was breezing past players. I think it's about, for her, it's more about the focus and her mentality because she just needs to make sure that she's being, it's competitive enough for her um, to drive for those targets that she's got to aim for because she could become one of the best players this country has seen. Yeah, but it's funny because you sort of assume as the game matures, there'll be less players coming in at 15, 16, 17, like a lot of the current England players did, because obviously the standard would be higher. But there are still players coming through. I mean, look at Mary Fowler in Australia. Yeah, so there are still players coming through at still a very young age. Mm. I think we'll see more and more of that, actually, in, in, in the future, because, you know, still the current crop of the older mm. 
lionesses, you know, they were still having to travel massive distances to go and train when they were, mm. you know, at a younger age. Now that the clubs have got fantastic academies, players are playing and being coached properly at a very young age, I think we're going to see more and more young talent coming up. And also, I mean, girls obviously do develop physically quicker than boys. Yeah, you know, as we see in other sports like tennis, you know, younger players come through, players come through younger in the female side of the game than they do in the men's side. Mm. Let's look at Liverpool. Yeah, you saw them. Um, that's a huge defeat for them, you know, both in sort of um, almost symbolic terms, losing to Manchester United. Mm. Where does that defeat, well, at least on the bottom of the table at the moment, where does that leave Liverpool? I think Vicky Jepsen has quite a, a task on hands. I mean, you look at that squad of players and there's some very, very good players in, in amongst that they just need to click and they're not doing that at the moment. They played really well in the first half, I thought, on, on Saturday. Um, they just couldn't um, uh, capitalise on, on the chances that they did get. Um, and then they came out in the second half and they just didn't perform. So I think that would be hugely frustrating for them. But I think she's building something new there. Um, Liverpool were under Matt Beard when he won the titles. They were very at the top of the game. Then they definitely dipped massively. Um, and you never quite knew what the relationship with the men's side mm -hmm. and the women's side were. I think you're starting to get a bit more of a one-club feel around it again. Um, she's been, what, she came in halfway through last year or something. Um, she needs some time to get that squad back, back to, into shape. Yeah, that, the, the help, um, both on a financial and almost like a, a strategic level, from the men's club, could actually work in their favour. Yeah, Liverpool are a very good example of the advantages and dangers of becoming reliant on the men's clubs, which the women's game has now moved towards largely being. I mean, I know Durham are doing well, for example, but in the Championship. But, yeah, as we've seen in the past with Charlton, Notts County and so on, you know, you are very much at the whim of the men's club funding once you get to this sort of level of funding, because it's all basically being subsidised. So Liverpool, for a couple of years, really suddenly made a big effort. Um, when Matt went, went there and Lucy Bonds went there and several other players, they, they, they invested heavily, they got ahead of the game in, in terms of most clubs, in terms of their support off the pitch, or, you know, um, physios and you know, that sort of stuff, and they massively increased their staff and they were the best team in the country for a couple of years. Then the management appeared to lose interest and you end up with Matt Beard's wife washing the kit you know, a year or so later. Uh, yeah, and now suddenly, you know, it looks like they're picking up again. You would have thought we were American owners, as at Villa, the women's game is bigger there and therefore there might be a bit more buzz. And certainly the, this year when they went together on tour to the States, when they travelled together, uh, that, that was a sign perhaps that they are thinking, well, we are one club. And certainly Everton are very much doing that now. I mean, across the city, we're dropping the women name, you know, the, just calling the women's team Everton. We haven't mentioned Manchester City. You know, 100% in the, in the Super League. Uh, they're playing probably one of the ties of the round in the last 16 in the Champions League against Atletico Madrid. That's one to look forward to, isn't it? Very much so. Tony Duggan going back against her former club. Yeah, definitely one to look forward to and a real test for City as well. Um, I think they were knocked out by Atletico at the last 32 stage last season. Um, so they'll want to, you know, they've already gone one better. They want to go even further and it'll be a really good test, I think, for Nick Cushing's side. Mm. You know, we look at the men's team at City, and you know they've got a strategic objective to win the Champions League. Is that similar with the women's side? Well, I think they'd love to do it first. And they've got the, you know, Atletico are the Spanish champions, but they've had a bad start to the season, beaten, heavily beaten by Barcelona um, in the, the big match over there. Um, I think they very much, they'd love to do it first, wouldn't you? 
You know, Nick Christian to beat Guardiola to the big trophy. Yeah. And, and he's under a bit of pressure to, to get a trophy. And Arsenal, you know, with respect, have probably got an easier tie. Slavia, Slavia Prague. Yeah, I think they'll be breathing a big sigh of relief there because they were in the, they were unseeded, so they could have got Lyon or Wolfsburg or PSG, which I think would have been very tricky at this time of year. Um, so I think they'll definitely be happy with that that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Can you? Um, you know, we've got Glasgow City as well. I've got to mention them. Um, they've got probably the best draw that they could have got in terms of the Bromby were the lowest seeded team. Um, what's the sort of state of play in Scotland in terms of the women's game? Do you think? There is uh, quite a lot of investment starting to come in. I think Celtic are going to go full time. I've seen, and there's certainly there is more. The bigger clubs are getting involved, but Glasgow City is still the senior club. But there is more investment coming in, um, and the success of the Scotland team reaching the finals, the World Cup finals, was clearly a big impetus. I mean, I think the um, the government underfunded made the, the Scottish-based players full time for a while, but certainly at the moment, most of the better players will still come south. Okay. Glasgow have won everything, but um, Hibs are starting to come through. They they won the Scottish Cup, I think, last year. Um, they're starting to challenge Glasgow for that that place at the top. Um, they they were in the Champions League in the last round. Mm. Um, they were well beaten, but they actually I was up there for their home game, and they played really well. In, in, like, so it was a really good experience for them, I think, for next year if they get there. Mm. Um, they, they'll take a lot from that. Mm. So as a sort of, to bring all this together, I suppose one question really. Is it realistic to expect an English club, i.e. City or, or Arsenal, to overcome Lyon, who have basically won it for fun for so many years? <laughs> well, they're going for their fifth in a row, aren't they, Lyon? And you wonder, yes, they'll probably want, you know, would that be a record? Yes. Five in a row? It would yeah, be. Yeah. So, you know, they, they, they'll want that record, but could an element of complacency come into it? that they're assuming so? Might they underestimate someone, perhaps? Chelsea pushed them very close last time. Mm. I mean, I was at the game at King's Meadow and, yeah, Leon really had to work hard to hang in there to, to get through. Mm. I think it's getting closer. Um, I think Leon have had the head start in terms of their investment for so long, um, but it's definitely getting closer and closer now. True enough. Can anyone stop Leon winning for a record seventh time? Probably not. But City could be the best of the rest. Thanks for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. 
Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.